unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, copywriters, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today, man? I'm good, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. You know, I was listening to some of the old episodes recently, and I, I messed up one time very early. I think it was like episode three. I called you David Garfunkel by accident. Wow. Well, you know, that's the only thing they call me when I'm in LA because Garfunkel is the pronunciation of Garfield, Garfinkel, Finkel, Garson, because it's a famous name. It is. And it was one of my favorite bands uh, when I was younger. And so I think that, I think it was just subconsciously there. And I, I listened, I heard it on the podcast and I was just like, oh, what a, what a way to make a horrible impression with a new client. But now we're a hundred and some episodes in. So apparently I didn't spoil our relationship too bad. No. And, and you're from LA. So, you know, it had happened before I figure you know, it happens. Okay. So <laughs> totally off of the script of what we were going to be talking about today. Um, I'm going to hand it over to you. And I think that we're going to have kind of a back and forth discussion this week. We are. And, and strangely enough, it, it relates in a distant way to what we're talking about. And that'll, that'll become apparent in just a few minutes. Here's what happened. I've been looking at some books for other projects, and they're from the entertainment field. They're not from advertising or marketing or copywriting. And uh, here are the books, because I think readers might or might not like them, but I'll just mention them. One's called Music, the Brain, and Ecstasy. Second one's called The Writer's Journey, second edition. And the third one's called, and oh, the first one is by Music Brain Ecstasy by Robert Jourdain. The second one is The Writer's Journey, second edition by Christopher Vogler. And the third one is Shortcuts to Hit Songwriting by Robin Frederick. And what I noticed is I kept, I kept seeing things in these books that, that applied to copywriting. Uh, songwriting, they were talking about the hook and the writer's journey, a lot of things about storytelling and music, the brain and ecstasy. They're talking about describing the interior experience of people. And I thought, that's not how it used to be. At least that's not how I used to understand copywriting. In fact, copywriting often drew a distinction from brand advertising and institutional advertising and image advertising and that they did all this silly, funny, entertaining stuff. And we were serious because Claude Hopkins said money spending is a serious thing. But I noticed that things have changed somewhat. They've changed. And I thought we should talk about that because if you're stuck in the rules of a long time ago, I think it's going to hurt your, your copy's ability to make sales. But if you take a totally wide open look at it, you're going to become like the guy who made the Geico commercial I saw this morning where a guy is juggling while he's, you know, chopping food and sets off the uh, smoke alarm and his wife puts up an umbrella and then, you know, we don't, we don't want to go there either. So I would say the rules have changed, but one thing has not changed and never will. And that is that copy is powerful and you're responsible for 
how you use what you hear in this podcast. Most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health finance and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. So let's, let's talk about this. You've been writing copy, what, around six years, 10 years, Nathan? I'm, I can't remember how long. Professionally, I've been writing for about five or six years. And then for myself, I've been writing about seven or eight years. And you read a lot. So you've read a lot of the classics, and, you know, uh, Claude Hopkins and, and John Caples and things like that. Mm-hmm. And they were pretty serious guys. You might want to have them around when you want to make money, but you might not want to party with them. They just didn't seem like they had great senses of humor or, or you know, imaginations outside of the world of, of advertising. And, and so, I mean, a lot of the copywriters are not, I know old school people, they're pretty serious in, in the, copy they write they're some are a lot of fun when they're not writing copy but that i think that's how it was that entertainment was almost a, a part of another world it really didn't fit in copywriting and i've noticed now things have changed these days i'm seeing not necessarily more humor in in copy that works but certainly more drama i'm seeing more disclosure, more vulnerability. Some of the new people on the scene are, you know, talking about their therapy and their childhood. And, and it's just part of, you know, it's not unusual. A lot of people are doing this. And I I, I think this is, this is true in copy that sells too. Um, Not, not just content. And I think, you know, there, there are a few key, key, changes. Then I'll shut up. I said I wanted to go back and forth, but let me just sort of lay out the rest of my case. Uh, I think three things have, have got us to this point that affect copy, affect selling with the written word. The first thing is technology changes. And I'm, I'm not going to... There's another place where I want to talk about social media. So that's as a category, as a third change. But the first one, technology changes. The iPad, I think changed a lot because suddenly the internet went from being an ugly place to an artistically outstanding place or the possibility of that. I think Netflix and Amazon Prime, the fact that all of a sudden you didn't have to go to a movie theater, you didn't even have to turn on your TV. You know, you could you could watch this incredible stuff on your iPad. And then I think another thing is changes in news. I mean, mainstream news, whether it's Fox or CNN or MSNBC or the networks, it's become more like entertainment now. Uh, I'm sure you'll find people who would love to argue with me about that, but I grew up in that business and I know it's just what has happened. Um, And politics. I mean, you know, all of the elected politicians think they're rock stars and they sort of get little reviews from what they said in this soundbite as to, you know, what their Q score is going to be and how uh, almost, almost like every time they're on camera is an audition for a role in a movie or a TV show. And, um, 
we don't have to talk about President Trump too much, except that a lot of people call him the reality TV show president. The third thing is social media. There are some rules, especially on Facebook and other networks that I'm not as familiar with, that really prevent a lot of the old school copywriting techniques, really squash hyperbole, really basically forbid a lot of the negative emotions that are actually part of everyone's life, but are not allowed on Facebook in advertising and other, other things like that. Uh, just a, a lot of strict rules. So what do you got left? Entertainment and also YouTube. And the, you know, I was mentioning people talking about their therapy and their childhoods and their intimate lives. I think YouTube and the call for authenticity and disclosure and vulnerability as a human being in content, um, I think that's sort of seeping over into copy. What, what, are, what I've said a million things, but what are your reactions to the most provocative ones? Um, well, I want to take it back to something that you said last week with Richard Armstrong. Okay. You guys were talking about the the native advertising, the comic book strip of the guy getting the sand kicked in his face by the bully. Yeah, the Charles Atlas ad. Mm -hmm. There's foundational things that work in copy. You, you want to have the the transformation. What's the pain point they want to move away from? What's the pleasure that they want to move towards? There's the how do we interrupt and, and get it, their attention with a good headline or a good hook or a good story. There's the let's make sure we're not focusing on the features and, and focus instead on how this benefits the reader. There's how do we have a, a good, strong call to action? Those things are all foundational. And I don't think that those things really change, but the way people consume their media has definitely changed. And I think that that's the, the main overall tie between all three, three, all three things that you mentioned, the technology changes, the changes in news and politics and the changes with, what social media has brought, those are all a change in how people are consuming now. And so advertising has had to change to meet and, and conform with the way people are consuming things. And I think that that's the real thing is the market is demanding a different type. And some of it is like you mentioned with Facebook, they want a certain experience and they want to algorithmically alter the experience. And so you have to conform to that. There's also just the fact that, like you said, with Amazon Prime and, and uh, the way news and politics are now, which has kind of hurt news and politics, the fact that people want stuff right away. We don't want to wait till the evening news. We want it right now. We don't want to wait until seven o'clock when the primetime movie comes on. We want to flick on our iPad and watch it right now. So as advertisers, we've had to adjust to meet what the market is consuming. Yeah, I, I think that's completely true. And I, I also think you and I are, are thinking about you and, and myself. We're lucky in that we do have some of the other influences and aspects of our lives that we can bring into it. I've studied screenwriting and I'm playing with music all the time. And you have a background as a, a singer and songwriter and musician and, and a graphic artist, a comic book artist. So even if we're not going to be putting that literally into our copy, it influences it. It, 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 you know, it's, 
it's sort of like the well-intended but maybe never successful argument for a liberal arts education, right? <laughs> it's like it rounds out the person. Not sure, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people who've been through them and it basically rounds out the number of zeros in the student loan debt they have, but I'm not sure it has really done much for them, you know, practically or creatively. But I think when you do have a background of studying this stuff, doing this stuff, by that I mean, you know, studying drawing, doing drawing, studying screenwriting, analyzing movies, writing stories, all those things, I think it helps. What's your thought about that? Absolutely. And again, I think that a lot of money is wasted on liberal arts education. So I'm going to, I'm going to back that up, but I love comic books and I still read comic books. I hate to admit it because it's such a nerd boy thing to do, but I still read select comic books and I grew up reading them and I love them. And I read a lot of fiction. I, I, I know a lot of business owners and copywriters are like, oh, you got to read the new Russell Brunson book and you got to read the new, uh, it's, it's, you got to read the Eugene Schwartz classics. And it's all about the marketing and business books. I read a lot of fiction books because I love picking apart how those people hold our attention. You recommended a book one time on the podcast. It was, uh, it was a storytelling book. Was it Wired for Story? Wired for Story. And, that, and after reading that book, I've gone through like my old Stephen King classic novels that I love reading. And I've gone through... Now, every time I read a book, I, the stuff that the lady in that book points out, I look for those things. And I make sure that I mimic them in my sales copy as well. Understanding... Again, it goes back to, this is what the market wants. This is what, this is what their attention is drawn to. and they're a more sophisticated market in some aspects, but they're also the same things that have always worked still work in other aspects. And it used to be people had very limited choice on what kind of media they could consume. So if you put your advertisement in the Reader's Digest, the majority of Americans were forced to see it because everybody bought Reader's Digest to see what was on TV or, 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 or TV Guide or, or whatever the case may be. Um, it's not like that anymore. So in order to compete now with the flooded, oversaturated entertainment options that people have, you need to know what works in the, in the more entertaining aspects in order to make your ad actually stand a chance. Yeah, I think so. It's like, you, you know, I think the, the most important thing is to be able to make a distinction. Alfred Hitchcock said that Drama is like real life, but with the dull bits cut out. And knowing there, I mean, there are two really important things there. One is often people think when you write a story, it needs to be fantastic. And I think this again comes from school, especially well intentioned but clueless first grade teachers, you know. Um, you know, you have to have a different world with a purple sun and and unicorns with three horns, tricorns, or I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff that no one would ever believe in real life. Actually, just the opposite is true. The more believable a story is, the more we enjoy it and the more effective it is in persuasion. So I, I think, you know, some some of these entertainment skills are necessary. People want that. They I think 
if they read a case study or they they read a lead, they want to believe it. And I think they want to experience it. They want to get that same hit of of dopamine or adrenaline or whatever neurochemicals they get when they're watching something in real life or they're watching a really good movie. And I, I think it's important for people to understand that, that to have a, a two-dimensional character just to make a point in a sales letter is not going to work as well as a three-dimensional character that you really know and that is saying things that a person would really say. Okay, so how do you find out what, what people would really say? Well, you know, I've, I think I've talked a few times about the exercise of going to a Starbucks and, you know, eavesdropping, being a, a secret spy. But I had an experience. I needed to buy some new batteries for my mouse. And um, I went to Walgreens. And in front of me, there was this really old guy. I mean, he might have been 80 or 75 or 80. And, and he goes up and he's at the counter. And, you know, like a lot of old people do, he just starts talking, not really even thinking if anyone would care or if anyone's listening or even if it's appropriate. And he says, well, I used to be a banker. I think I'm going to have to charge my wife for this. And the woman behind the counter says, oh, yeah, well, maybe she's going to charge you for making dinner and doing your laundry. And I thought, wow. Wow, that was real life. That wasn't out of some sitcom. That really happened. And I think part of it, now, other than for this podcast, I have no idea how or if I'm ever going to use that. But I thought it was you know, it was perfect. There was this guy, he was a banker and, you know, maybe his empathy gene was never there or he turned off his empathy switch or he was just thinking out loud because he needs to, you know, balance his cashier's box every day. I don't know what was going on, but it it was fascinating. And I think you have to be on the lookout. You have to, you, you can't just be a copywriter when you're sitting at your computer or you're sitting at your desk. Um, you know, you need to be a, a more broad-scale observer of life and look for things like that and think about them. Because even if you're not going to use that, you know, there's a principle you can draw out of that. Okay, this guy was a banker, so he looks at everything in terms of, you know, balancing a cash box. Uh, what kind of trouble can get that, that get him into besides at the Walgreens, maybe at home? And, you know, the same same thing about when people look at life through one very narrow lens. It can be very effective in one way, but can really screw up their life in other ways. I mean, you see, so you can start to develop all kinds of ideas that make your copy a lot more interesting and unique than if you just do the same thing you've been doing for years that everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to throw this on you because I don't know if you you know this yet, but we've got Ben Settle uh, booked for a podcast episode in about a month. And he is, he's one of the guys that I really, when I started saying I need to focus on how to learn how to do this copywriting thing, he was one of the guys that I really fell in love with because he does this. He says, whatever everyday normal life stories that I can 
draw a lesson about marketing from and convey that message and then turn it into a way to pitch my product. And so a story like that, a a lot of times Ben's stories are, Hey, I was, I was at the, I was at the pharmacy today and in the checkout line, this, this, and this happened. And it really made me think this. And so, yeah, when, when we are naturally human beings, we love stories. And if we can draw a lesson from those stories, that's why we love stories because they teach us lessons without placing us in the actual danger of the situation or in a boring classroom or in a boring, there you go. But um, yeah, as marketers, as copywriters, there's things that we can be drawing from everyday life all around us. If we're, if we're clued into it, it doesn't all have to come from the, the great classic books. That's not to discount those books, but the everyday life is what makes our lessons relatable. Absolutely. I, th- I think, you know, reading classic books, if we read them the right way and we think about them, they can teach us how to look at life with better understanding. I'm really excited that Ben's coming on. We'd been talking about that offline and I knew you'd been trying to find a time with him. So about a month from now, huh? Uh, Yep. Probably four episodes from this one. So I want to ask you though, other than just everyday life that's going on around us and and being observant of that, what Mm -hmm. are some other things that you think we should be doing to pull people into our copy. So you were mentioning, I think you, yeah, you were mentioning earlier that, that you like to read Stephen King novels and and so forth. I think it's almost like the opposite of the banker in a way. It's like, instead of trying to make everything conform to, you know, your view of the world as a banker or an engineer or a marketer or a copywriter or whatever, look at how the things you want to have happen in your copy, namely to get people's attention, to keep people's attention, to get their belief, and to get them to take action, right? How does that happen in real life? How does it happen at a store? How does it happen at a car dealer? How does it happen in the jungle with a small animal and a big animal? How does it happen at a, you know, in Las Vegas? How does it happen at a, a poker table? How does it happen at a diner? I mean, to, to me, you know, one of the great things I've heard about I heard this great story about Gary Albert where he went to a bar and he was able to predict like the behavior of six different people in a row. Where does that come from? I don't think he was just born with that talent. I think he developed it through a lot of observation, you know, becoming fascinated with people. Um, And, and also, you know, I was afraid when I first started studying screenwriting and um, um, other kinds of dramatic and fictive writing that I would enjoy watching TV and movies less because I know how it's done. Actually, the opposite has happened because when it's done really well, you really appreciate it. I can feel the stuff more deeply now. Some stuff I can't, I used to be able to watch anytime. I have to wait till I can really blot out the world in my mind and, and know that I'm just going to have time to sink in to it and watch it because it affects me more deeply than it used to. And so going through that experience myself gives me some tools to be able to at least imagine how someone else might go through it. And in the process, write stuff that touches people more deeply. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a little bit of a divergent because you just 
you reminded me of this and going back to what we started the podcast off with, um, you mentioned knowing how screenwriting works, knowing how uh, a movie works, knowing you got to have your conflict, you have to have your inner conflict, how those two are related, what's the stakes, what, what, is the, what, is the, what does the person have to overcome, what could they possibly lose, what could they possibly gain, all of that stuff, what makes mm-hmm. the hero relatable. Uh, when it comes to songs, there's a very classic pattern for songs. It's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. Right. One of the first things that you learn when you start writing songs. When I came across your work, that was one of the things that I was like, wow, this is just like songwriting. Like you got your, you, you got your headline, then you got your hook, and then you got your whatever comes next. And I was like, this is just like, so for, I don't know if it's because you're also obsessed with songwriting, but when I came across your work, I was like, wow, there's so much overlap between songwriting and how film works and how copywriting works. So figuring out what is it about this song that pulls me in? What is it about this movie that pulls me in? And asking, is there a way I can use this to make people get pulled into my sales copy? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I called that the golden question. Um, what you just said, how can I use this? Or is there a way I can use this? Um, understand that people can be authentic and still be using a technique. That every technique is not meant to deceive or dissemble or be phony. That you can be honest and you can use a technique to get your honest message across in a more effective way. A, a lot of people especially people who haven't had much on the line, don't have much entertainment experience, um, haven't had much on the line when they have to deliver a message, think, well, the most thing is to be natural. Well, does that mean to drool when, when you're talking? Does that mean to have n- n- narcolepsy? You know, I mean, yeah, you, you want the emotions to be natural, but you want a certain amount of skill and polish in, in how you deliver stuff. Not You just don't want it to be come across as constipated or stuffy. You want it to come across as natural. I, I don't know if that's making any sense because it sort of sounds rambling to me, but I, I, guess, I guess what I'm getting at is that there, there is a convergence of, of art and real life. And maybe, maybe copywriting is one of those points of convergence. Also, thank you for what you said about when you first discovered my work. I studied a lot of things. And screenwriting especially, you know, I took a lot of seminars in Hollywood, decided I didn't want to become a screenwriter, but I learned a lot about it. And most of the people there end up talking about structure or anti-structure. But ultimately, structure is a major issue. There are some people who say screenplays are structure. There's a new writer I've discovered. uh, His name is Greg Hurwitz. He wrote the Orphan X books. They they kept me going as much as Richard Armstrong's book, and I don't even like fiction nearly as much as you do, Nathan. And I saw him interviewed with Jordan Peterson. And um, Jordan, sort of a proper, you know, guy, uh, didn't like this. But Hurwitz said, "I'm a structure slut," and and Jordan was trying to get him to reframe. He said, "No, I'm a structure slut." But he, you know, I 
it's like the structure, it's like the bones didn't stick out in his book, but boy, he knew what he was doing and he knew how to do it. It, it, it does make a difference. I mean, you, you ultimately learn structure so you don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've seen a lot of writers, copywriters and others who write stories that don't have a beginning, middle, and they're missing either a beginning, a middle or an end. That's, that's, that's the first part of structure. But it, and I know Richard Armstrong was talking about starting the story as close to the middle as possible. Okay, that's <clears throat> subtle, but that's still the middle is the close to the middle as possible is the beginning of your presentation of the story, even if the actual story started sooner. Talking about stories, I know that I have a couple of stories. I have a couple of emails and uh, pieces that I send at least twice a year. And it's because they convert every single time. One is a story about being denied permission to go to the bathroom when I was in kindergarten and ended up peeing my pants. And uh, my dad told me, you don't have to ask permission. And that was a huge moment as to that. It made me view life differently and it made me want to take on entrepreneurship and take on certain things that other people might be afraid to. And so that, that sales letter, every time I send it out, I always get people to sign up for my community. Um, another one is a story about when me and my little brother, when we were kids, our first non-above-the-board business was selling drugs. <laughs> and I learned a bunch of entrepreneurial lessons from that. And there was one instance where we were trying to sell a product at a party where it was just not the proper market. And um, it taught me a lot about a, a lot about customer awareness and when you should be selling and who you should be selling to. And, and those two letters, every time I send them out, they convert like gangbusters. And so I send them out two, two times, sometimes three times a year. But then there's other stories that, I've so, that, that are just as authentic, just as real, just as, as much as I think that they'll sell and just as emotional. They've got the same... They pull at the same heartstrings, but they don't get the same conversions. And so I'm wondering, with with the move towards authenticity, the move towards storytelling, um, I've seen it backfire sometimes. So what are some things that maybe me and the listener, what are some things that we should maybe not do in this new era of marketing? Well, the first thing is not to be a perfectionist. Some, you know, you're testing. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I, you know, one thing I've learned lately in songwriting um, that I am almost sure would be very true about the two stories you mentioned. And I don't know about the ones that didn't work, so I can't comment on them, but it's not just a matter of authentic being open. It's a matter of, it's a matter of something that was personally meaningful to you, something that touched your heart. I mean, you know, I guess it's a little awkward to say peeing in your pants touches your heart, but it it did. I mean, it, it was really meaningful to you. You felt it, you know, I, I, I got to get out of this. Let's talk about the other story. Um, selling drugs. Um, you, you know, these, they, they, they're, it, when you think about these things, this probably as, seems as real as though it happened yesterday, right? It's very vividly imprinted in your memory. And so, you know, you, you hear a lot of songs that are really popular. And even if the song's not about, if the song is not about the original incident that inspired the songwriter to write it, for example, uh, one of the Beach Boys' biggest songs in history was Good Vibrations. 
And it turns out that Brian Wilson was walking with his mother and a dog barked at her, maybe not in a very friendly way. And he said to her, that dog barked at you. And she said, it didn't like my vibration. And he was obsessed with the idea that there were these vibrations out there and maybe he could feel them. And he knew that sometimes there were bad vibrations and sometimes there were good ones. And so it was very important to him that maybe the whole world have good vibrations so he wouldn't suffer anymore. And maybe so dogs wouldn't bark at his mother. I don't know. But um, you see, it was, even if it seems silly on like the greater scheme of things, dogs barking, it, it was very meaningful to him, really touched his heart. And, you know, I, so I, I think, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with how meaningful your reader or your viewer takes the information. And I think the only, I think, I don't think you can construct that artificially too well. I think it needs to come from a place where that is very, where you feel it's very meaningful, even if you reconfigure it afterwards. It's that honest emotion of meaningfulness that the original thought came from that can make the difference. How does that sound? Yeah, because I, I, I noticed, and I think you even critiqued one of my pieces uh, about a power outage that we had. And that story, I've sent it out before, and it never converts. And it's just, I think maybe it's because I, I used too much hyperbole in it, or maybe, I'm not sure, but I, I thought it was going to, when it happened, and I was like, oh, this is going to be a great sales letter. This is going to be a great message. <laughs> and uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't hit those heartfelt, emotional cues that the other one does it's just a uh oh it was kind of like an aha moment for me but it just didn't resonate for the the reader i guess i i want to pick your brain though as we're heading out of here i want to pick your brain on what are some things for people to keep in mind as this type of entertainment value and this type of storytelling value it's almost a, ne a necessity to to take advantage of it in in certain aspects of your copy what are some concerns or some things that people should look out for to make sure they're not doing to screw up their sales letters. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing, and it's such a, it's such a uh, temptation for a lot of writers is don't just do stuff to be clever. To, don't, don't go for applause. Don't do your entertainment to get a standing ovation, you know, do your entertainment to get people to look into themselves and then look into their wallets and pull out their credit card. I, I think you, you also, one thing you don't want to do is to minimize the importance of salesmanship. The story is in the service of a, a larger communication and a relationship, which is going to allow you get, get you permission from the person to offer them something and get them interested in buying it. That's what it's really about. You know, if you want to be a novelist, if you want to be a screenwriter, if you want to be a songwriter, and I think you and I can relate to that ourselves. We had Richard on last time. He not only wanted to be a novelist, he is a novelist. But, you know, keep those things separate in your mind. Don't, don't try and work out your need to be a, a great entertainer by itself in your copy. Do that in some other activity, but bring in the skills to make your copy 
I think the ultimate thing you're looking for is to make it more meaningful, not just to you, but to the person reading it or seeing it, hearing it. But ultimately, the job of a sales piece is to sell, not to, not exclusively to pull at the heartstrings, not exclusively to tell a good story. The the real, right? The real thing that we're looking for is: does this get sales? Yes, absolutely. Okay, David, uh, fantastic! I I had fun on this episode, so thank you for good. You're thank welcome. you for bringing this this uh, topic forward, man. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, I loved hearing what you had to say. I, I I think you probably told me about those those two stories before, but I was glad to hear about them again. <laughs> nice. All right. So any idea what we have coming up next time on the Copywriters Podcast? I do. We have a special guest uh, who's going to talk about stop leaving money on the table. Nice. All right. I can't wait. And until then, if you need to get your copywriters fix, head on over to copywriterspodcast.com. And we'll see you later. See you later. Before we go, a quick question. Would you like to have me as a guest on your podcast? Let me give you an easy way to contact me about that. We've put up a form on GarfinkelMedia.com, and it won't take much more than a minute to fill it out. So if you'd like to have me on your show, just go to GarfinkelMedia.com and fill out the form. That's GarfinkelMedia.com. Thanks, and see you next time on the Copywriters Podcast. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network. 